0: Our ushers will begin at this time to pass out the note sheets and Bibles, so if you need a Bible, please raise your hand so that we can supply you with the Word of God, faithful and true. We want you to be able to read along as we are studying it together, and we're going to be tackling a a significant portion of verses today in chapter 9 of Hosea, so if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles to prepare for that, that would be a good time to do it. Today's sermon is going to have more of an apologetics emphasis to it. As, uh, as we prepare to preach the Word each week, our hope and goal is that we would be able to show you Christ in the text, that we would be able to reveal to you at all points in God's Word how the Lord Jesus Christ is triumphing over our sin, how He is preparing us to live in faith towards Him, how the will of God in redemption through Christ is being done. And, and so today we hope to see Christ, but we also recognize that there are times when we need to stop and, and, and take a moment to really dig through deep and difficult issues that present themselves in the text. Some sermons are going to be more academic than other sermons are. Some of them will be more polemic. They'll have more of a a defense of the faith kind of feel to them or an educational feel to them. And so today as we, we tackle several verses here, we're going to be looking at a twofold unfolding of God's wrath upon the people in the north who had forsaken him and turned their back On the covenant. They didn't forsake him in in a completely obvious way. We've seen over the last several weeks that many of them continued on in the hollow shell of religious devotion to Yahweh, but their hearts were very, very far from him. And we know that God is not content with an empty worship, a worship that is not sincere. And so we're going to examine today verses 10 through 17 in the book of Hosea. And so if you've got your Bibles, we'll read that text together and then pray for God's guidance as we seek to understand it. Starting in verse 10, Hosea writes, Like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel, like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season. I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing that they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and a dry breast. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, there are are times when the passage of scripture that is laid before me is heavy and it is weighty on my conscience, Lord God, to preach the deep words of your scripture. But Father, we bring the word out because it is the way that you communicate yourself to us. And so help us to see clearly what you are showing about yourself through this very difficult condemnation that you poured out upon an unfaithful people. Help us, Lord God, to take our time through this text and to be careful with it. Father, help us to walk away from this scripture all the more convinced that you are a God of truth and love, a God who cares for his people, a God who is faithful even amidst our unfaithfulness. We love you and thank you for all that you are in Jesus' name. Amen. Not all scripture is comfortable, is it? When we come to God's word and we read it together, we were just speaking in Sunday school about this very fact Earlier this morning, we are in a section of Hosea's prophecy where we are week by week listening to the difficult proclamation of God's judgment on a segment of his covenant people. It's, it's almost as if, I don't know if you remember, way back when you were young, and you'd go and you'd visit a friend at their house, and then you'd be roughhousing, you'd be doing something to your friend, and then your friend would mess up and break the rules, and then their mom and dad would come down on them with you sitting right there in the room. I don't know if there's much more awkwardness that a little kid can experience than when your friend gets in trouble and you can't run away. Like, Mom, drop me off. I don't have any way to get home. And so you just sit there and Mom and Dad are coming down on that kid and you don't know what to do. You don't know if you should scoot out of the room. It's almost like that. We're seeing the northern kingdom of Israel admonished heavily for their unfaithfulness to Yahweh and we have to sit and, and witness it. We have to think through it. We have to... Consider what we are to learn from this testimony that God has given to us. As we learned two weeks ago, Israel has sown the seeds of rebellion. And now they're reaping the bitter fruit of retribution and justice from their God. The northern kingdom's covenantal unfaithfulness results in two very serious consequences discussed here in this section from verses 10 to verse 17 in chapter 9. And so the first one we're going to look at is the consequence of displacement These people who were gods are going to become displaced because of their rejection of Yahweh and His authority over them. The power of the covenant that God had made with Israel, starting really with Abraham and Sarah, was the promise of having a place with God. The promise of belonging next to God in a trusting relationship. And along with that, to have a physical home, a place where they belonged and could live out their devotion to God in a worshipful way. Because of their disregard for the terms of the covenant that God had made with them, the northern kingdom is now experiencing a tragic loss of their place with God. A loss of their place in his covenant and a loss of the physical place that they had enjoyed dwelling in for so many years now. Now the beginning of this problem is described in verse 10 of our text when the prophet speaks of Israel like like grapes in the wilderness. He's pointing back to their past to the beginning of the covenant that is now in such disrepair. Israel was not a sovereign nation when Yahweh established covenant with Abraham. They were not even a people yet. God came to him and initiated a relationship with Abram, forming him and Sarah into a family that would display his glory by making the many people to follow after the Lord God. But Yahweh found these people. He found them and established this covenant on his own. The inauguration of the covenant between God and his people started with great promise. Verse 10 goes on to describe the fathers of Israel, those early leaders like Abraham and Isaac and Israel, as similar to the first fruits of a young fig tree that, that bears fruit for the first time. One cannot help but be thankful for the tree bearing that kind of fruit that it was meant to bear. My, my wife's going through a homesteading kick right now. And so every day, it's almost like running to the mailbox to see if somebody sent you a letter. Nobody mails anything anymore. So we just run to our garden every morning to see if there's a tomato on the vine or to see if there's a little squash growing up. You know, and when you see fruit coming from that which you have labored over, that which you have planted, then it's, it's a wonderful excitement to you. You get to enjoy the fruits of your labor. And so initially, this covenant was like the first fruits of a crop to the Lord God. It was a blessing to him. So there was initial obedience a hopeful willingness to cling to the Lord and to abide in the words that he promised in Abraham's family. The covenant relationship had not yet been put into jeopardy by blatant disrespect and hostile abandonment of the covenant terms. But in time, Israel's affections as the nation grew, their focus on Yahweh dwindled and their affections began to shift off of Yahweh and his covenant grace towards them and onto the potential of blessing from other foreign gods. Rather than being grateful to Yahweh for showing them such favor and kindness and making them into a people and providing them for them for their needs, their eyes began to wander and they began to long for other deities and the blessings that might come from them. The false gods of the people who live nearby became more attractive to them than the true God, who had revealed himself to the people miraculously. Once their affections shifted, then their commitments began to shift as well. Their commitments began to chase their affections. And so they began to offer up their praise and their worship to the false gods who had nothing to do with making them a people in the first place. They began to sing songs about Asherah and Baal. They began to worship at strange places and to offer weird sacrifices foreign to the covenant terms that God had provided for them. They began to pray to these false gods and to find their identity in these fake deities. And eventually they began to resemble the detestable things that they had allowed their wandering hearts to fall in love with. And mark my words, these deities, these fake little g-gods were nowhere near as noble and good and true as Yahweh is. They claimed to have power. Those who worshiped them swore that these gods were mighty and able, but their very character and nature was corrupt and entangled with sinful behavior, just like human beings are. It should be no surprise to us that when sinful humans make up gods, they make up sinful gods. And so once these affections were shifted and these commitments were shifted, eventually the people began to look like these sinful gods that they were worshiping. Verse 13 plays on verse 10's theme of Israel showing empty promise. This is like a traveler wandering in the desert looking for shade and water. Israel appears to be like a palm, a potential for some life-giving resources. And yet, as that traveler goes near to that palm, hoping that he'll find something of sustenance on that palm, he finds there's nothing there. There's nothing Israel has no life to give now that it is worshiping these false gods. They have become fruitless after all. And their little ones are beginning to follow in their footsteps. They're beginning to produce nothing like their moms and dads are producing as they follow in the footsteps of false worship to these gods who are detestable and sinful. When the prophet mentions Baal Peor in verse 10, He's making a direct reference to the historical events that are recorded in Numbers 25. Now, we don't have a lot of time this morning to go over this. So I want to just give you a brief summary. If you want, you can go back in your devotions this week and, and read through Numbers 25 again to get a reminder. But not long before their entrance into the Holy Land, the Israelites had temporarily settled in a place called Shittim. It was near the Midianite people. And many of the or many of the Israelite men were enticed by the daughters of Midian to attend festivals of Baal worship in their cities. So these, these attractive women started to come and, and, and rub elbows with the Israelite men and say, come to our festivals. Come and enjoy the bounties of our, of our feasts and come enjoy the, the events of our sacrifices. It's almost like when you're in a city and you come out to your car and there's one of those glossy cards and it's for some sort of event that you know is just filled with debauchery and sin. I doubt that the Midianite women used those glossy cards, but they were trying to invite these Israelite men in to participate in this false worship with them. And the men of Israel fell for it. They they went and they yoked themselves together with this false religion, and then they began to fall in love with these Midianite women and make wives out of them. And so God, in his rightful wrath, Begins to punish Israel. Before they've even gotten into the Holy Land, they're starting to lose track of their faithfulness to God here in Baal Peor. And so God brings a plague upon the nation. And people begin to get sick, and many are dying. The sin persists. Thousands begin to fall at the consequence of this plague. And in the midst of this crisis that is happening, as Moses is trying to implore the people to repent of this false worship and to turn away from these Midianite women, in a brash and a defiant move, a man named Zimri, who was from the tribe of Simeon, he brings his new Midianite woman into the camp. And he walks right past the leadership of the camp in a defiant way and brings her into his tent as if to say, I'm going to do what I want to do. Love is love, apparently. He's going to love who he wants to love, even if it's a sinful woman who's going to tear the nation apart, who's going to lead them away from the true worship of Yahweh. Now, greatly angered by the damage that this kind of rebelliousness would do to Yahweh's honor, Aaron, the priest who had passed away, his son Phinehas, acts swiftly and definitively. He picks up a spear. He follows Zimri into the tent, and he drives that spear right through Zimri and his lover. The seductress dies, Zimri dies. And in this historical moment, we see a foreshadowing of the infidelity that was to come in Israel. Though they repented in that moment and God stopped the plague and they were able to enter into the Holy Land, we see an echo of that unfaithfulness in the way that the northern kingdom is behaving within the boundaries of their covenant. They're breaking out of the boundaries. They're they're doing what they want to do and worshiping how they want to worship. And something must be done for the glory of God's great name. And so the difficult things we're reading here are in a similar context. When you hear about God's condemnation of the northern people, He is protecting the glory of His name. He is doing what needs to be done to make sure that God is not made to be a little thing. Despite Yahweh's favor, Israel did not respond with the kind of faithfulness that such a generous God deserves. And so the wilderness... Or the wildness, rather, that was originally definitive of this grapes that were found in the desert. Though they had been cultivated into a fruitful vine, they begin to act as if they were wild once again. And they took up again their unfaithful ways to Yahweh. Now this consequence of displacement begins to mature when we get to verse 15. It begins to, to, to deepen. Here a second important location is referenced. We've seen of Baal Baal Peor. And now the the prophet points to Gilgal as a place where all of their wickedness can be found and where God began to hate his covenant people. Now, are you you familiar with Gilgal? Do you remember this famous Israelite city? Gilgal was the place where the nation of Israel crossed the Jordan out of the wilderness and finally entered into the land of promise. Remember the, the stones that were carried across by the priests or the representatives of each of the tribes and the monument that was made to Yahweh and the great effort that was made to root those people's minds and hearts in the promises of God. So even before, even before they went into battle with Jericho, that first battle that, that is so impressive in our minds because we've learned about it as children in Sunday school, before they did that, there was something else that needed to be taken care of. The generations who had wandered in the wilderness While their disobedient parents who were not allowed to enter into the Holy Land passed away and died off, that new generation had not been circumcised. They had not taken the sign of the covenant upon the young males. And so before they went into battle, it's here at Gilgal, before the conquest of the Holy Land begins, when all the males of the nation were given that covenant sign. This is where God shows through His prophet, keep your eyes on me. Remember the promises that are being made today. Remember the boundaries of this covenant but Gilgal carries a second darker significance for the nation it is at Gilgal that Saul is crowned as the nation's first human king you can find that in 1 Samuel 10 a king who started strong he had some military victories he was impressive in many ways to the people but who eventually grew impatient with God's commands he began to show that his true devotion was to the approval of the people and not to the approval of his God And so he began to rule the nation after his own heart. He even committed such a great sin as to act as a priest when he in no way was qualified to offer sacrifice like a priest. It was at Gilgal that Saul's authority would be removed from him by Samuel the prophet in 1 Samuel 15. So you have beginnings and you have endings in Gilgal. That's why the prophet is pointing our attention to this Israelite city. A fitting comparison to the state of the disobedient nation nation in the north and the displacement from the covenant that they are about to experience they had been given every opportunity to be blessed they had been given every advantage over the people around them and yet still they turn their hearts away from the Lord God and follow it after their own hearts Hosea declares because of the wickedness of their deeds I will drive them out of my house now we think about displacement and here we see it in two ways my house carries implications on the land They will not have dominion over it any longer. Now, some of them will be physically expelled from the land. Others will be expelled from the ownership of the land. They will remain in the north, but they'll be conquered by the Assyrians and their land, which is supposed to be an inheritance and a promise that passes from generation to generation, will go to undeserving Gentiles. will go to these warring Assyrians who will crush them with oppressive leadership. But my house also carries a personal connection. Not only will they forfeit the, close, uh, the, the, um, the wonderful blessing of the land, but they're also going to forfeit the close relationship that God had granted to them through covenant. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Those are heavy words, and we're going to return to those at the end. Because they have effectively rejected Yahweh by insisting on pursuing these other false gods, the love of the true God will be removed from them, and the northern kingdom will no longer stand as the covenant people of God. Now we see further ramifications of this displacement in verse 17. It says, My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Note how the prophet Hosea here, speaking in the first person, because we're going to switch throughout this passage. You'll see the tense switch. Who's talking about whom? Here the prophet speaks for himself, and he says, My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. My God. He does not refer to Yahweh as our God anymore. He's showing the distinction between the true covenant people and those who played covenant, but are now being revealed as unfaithful and rejected from the covenant. Now, Yahweh is the prophet's God, but he is not the God of the northern people. Because the people have largely rejected Yahweh's authority of him, they can no longer claim to be his covenant people and to represent him in the land. They no longer belong to him and will soon find themselves as wanderers without a place of their own, much as God found them in the wilderness before he graciously extended the hand of covenantal fellowship to them in the first place and cultivated them into a wonderful vineyard. So the first consequence discussed is a displacement. It is a removal of the northern kingdom status as a covenantal people and a a removal of their claim to the land of promise. But the second consequence is more specific and it does deserve much attention this morning as well. The first consequence is a displacement. The second consequence is a loss of fertility. As part of God's covenantal connection to the people who flowed from Abraham, God would make abundance and multiplication Happen on a scale that was otherwise impossible. Consider Sarah's infertility. Consider she and Abraham's advanced age. When he comes and says, I will make you into a great and mighty nation, they were baffled by this. Rightfully so. These are not a people that have the blessing of fertility. Many are given to that by God, not all. And Sarah and Abraham had not been given that blessing to that point. When we think back to the beginnings of the covenant between God and Israel, we remember that Abram had struggled to understand how God would make him into a great nation since he had no children of his own. At one point, he even asks, are you going to do this through my servant, who right now is not my progeny, but is the closest thing I have to a relative? When I die, my fortune's going to go to him. And remember the words that God gave in this great covenantal passage in Genesis 15, 5 through 6. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. This is the distinct beginning of this covenant people that God would build for himself. He would make a people who could not be a nation because of their personal limitations and weakness. He would make them be a nation by his power and his generosity. And we know that God eventually kept that promise. Beginning with the miraculous birth of Isaac who would then become the father of Jacob, also known as Israel, the man who then would father the 12 tribes that would make up the the tribes of Israel. God had been keeping his promise. Even despite Israel's shaky commitment on their end, despite these episodes like we saw at Baal Peor, despite these episodes like we see at Gilgal, God continues to strive alongside them and show them mercy and long-suffering. But when the infidelity in Israel is no longer bearable to the Lord... Among the blessings that are forfeited by the northern kingdom is the blessing of that very fruitfulness and fertility that had originally been such a sweet gift of God in the first place. Verse 11, because of their covenantal unfaithfulness, Israel's glory will fly away like a bird. The idea here is that their glory is tied to their connection with the God of all glory. They only have glory because they belong to the God of glory. So they have, you know, unloving way separated themselves and distanced themselves from Yahweh they don't want to be near to him they want to be near to these other gods and since they have separated themselves from the God of glory they've separated themselves from glory itself so no glory now some specific examples of glory are shared glories that are about to be forfeited and here is where the passage can become quite controversial as a result of their judgment in verse 11 we read no birth no birth no pregnancy, and no conception. This is the very heavy burden that is being laid upon them as a rightful punishment for their covenant infidelity. I want you to see the irony here. Israel has been moonlighting with Baal, who is a fertility god, a god whom people would come and offer sacrifices to in hopes that he would multiply their crops in hopes that they would have many children, many sons to carry on their name, many, many people to make their nation strong. And so people would go and they would worship this fertility God, Baal, hoping that he would multiply them. And God says, you're looking in the wrong place. And because you have turned your back on the God of true life, no birth, no pregnancy, no conception, the people are about to experience the difficulty of a closed womb. And in verse 12, we read, even if they bring up children, I will bereave them until none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. This is another example of that, that kind of rare literary format that I talked to you about a week ago. We saw it in chapter, or two weeks ago, we, chop, we saw it in chapter 8, verse 7. Remember that, that when a, a pseudosorites is used, that means that language is communicating the certainty of Israel's calamity. He's saying, this, like he said in verse 7 of chapter 8, where he said, The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield flower, then strangers would devour it. So God is saying, my ultimate purpose is to punish. And whether it comes through this direction or this direction, it's going to certainly happen. So he's going to close the womb. Even if some in Israel have children, He's saying there will be an indictment upon those children. They will not live. They will not survive. They will not flourish. These pseudo are a useful device that Hosea goes back to time and time again to help us to see that mighty hand of God that directs all of what happens in history. The point is that God will sovereignly accomplish His purposes. In this case, one of His purposes is to clearly demonstrate to Israel that apart from Him, There is no life. Apart from the God who gives life, there is no life. He will no longer continue to bless them with abundant fertility as he has. And population expansion will be a thing of the past if they will not truly dwell with him in covenant. Now, this process of bringing life into the world is a glory given to man and woman by God. Think of the words that were read earlier in our call to worship in Psalm 127 where it says, Behold, Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with him. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And I'm grateful that many uh, of our families can boast of a very heavy quiver because the Lord has blessed us abundantly with many children. And we rejoice when that happens. That is something to celebrate. And we will not stop celebrating the bringing of new life into this church. Because children are always, without qualification, they are always to be seen as a blessing from God. No matter what difficult circumstances they came to us through, no matter how rough their early upbringing, if that is a human life, that life bears the image of God and is to be considered a blessing from heaven. Conversely, to lose a child is tragic, isn't it? Which is why the consequences communicated in verse 16 are so shocking to us. Ephraim writes the prophet, Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. This is going beyond crops, friends. We're talking about human life here. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. Wow. Here we see not only a removal of the ability to produce, to reproduce, which we could count almost as a passive indictment against Israel. But we see an active measurement of God whereby the lives of their children are taken as the fallout of their forsaking the covenant that they made with Yahweh. They have disobeyed Yahweh so completely that their little ones will lose their lives. I don't know if I could imagine a more gut-wrenching penalty for sin There is such frustration to begin with in not being able to conceive. And my heart goes out to families that wish they could have more children or wish they could have children in the first place. Perhaps the only thing more difficult would be to have a child and then to lose that child. How many parents, when praying over their sick or injured child, would confess that they have asked God, please God, it would hurt me so badly to to lose this child. I ask that you would take my life instead of the child's life. Let this little one live. Now, we don't have the power to negotiate with God like that. God is the giver and taker of life, as we will see here shortly. But that is the common heart of a parent who has grown to love this child that is a blessing to them from the Lord God. To lose a child can hurt so deeply. Rightfully, it is one of life's greatest griefs. And the unfaithfulness of the northern kingdom is so serious that this is the penalty that fits their crime. God is not an unjust God. He does not punish us beyond what we deserve to experience. And so you're beginning to see the true depth of the heinous forsaking that has gone on in the north where people have so shamed the name of God in their worship of false idols. And so we need to answer two questions this morning as we deal with this difficult passage of Scripture. Question number one Can God take the life of the unborn and still stand as a just and a loving God? It's a question we have to look right in the face today as we read verse 16 particularly. The way that God interacts with his people teaches us much about his character and nature. And so we have to pause when we look through a narrative like this and consider the implications on what it means about the way we see God and the way that we interact with him. Now each Friday, a number of us gather outside of the Planned Parenthood clinic that's just right down the street from us. And we go there hoping that no one will come and will have nothing to say. We go there holding signs, but we know that each week there are going to be several young people who are going to park their car and they're going to walk up to that clinic. And many of those who go are going there because there's a life in them and they don't want that life. There's a baby on the way and they see that baby not as a blessing as Psalm one. 37 teaches us to see it as, but they see it as a curse. They see that child as a bundle of problems and they don't know what to do. They are desperate. And so many go to Planned Parenthood because they've been told the answer to your problems is in that clinic. There they will give you a free solution to what is ailing your heart, to these fears and these anxieties that you have. And so we go there so that we might Lead with these young people, to help them to see how they have been lied to there by their society and by these clinics. We go there to urge them to understand that abortion, the ending of an unborn child's life, is murder, and murder is sin. No matter what kind of sins have led to, to the conception of that child, the answer is not to add more sin upon that sin to try to hope that it will get us out of the problem. Abortion is murder. And and so we plead with them in as gentle a way as we can. We plead with them to stop before it is too late, before a life is ended for their convenience sake. We make them aware of alternatives. We point them to pregnancy centers like Options Health, which is a, a very noble organization that's going to offer them free support, free medical care, free ultrasounds and supplements. who who can connect them with potential parents who are waiting to adopt a baby, parents who have not been given the blessing of fertility, but yet would love to express fatherhood and motherhood toward a child in need. We urge them, give these babies a chance to live. We we show them that churches like ours will offer support and resources to take away some of the challenge of bringing up a child in such a difficult world, and often it's such a difficult time of life. All of this because we know that killing any child, unborn or not, is a terrible sin regardless of whether a man-made government has decided to tell people that is acceptable. Abortion is unequivocally murder. Is the judgment that God renders here in verse 16 no different than what those young couples are tempted to do when they pull up to Planned Parenthood down the street? Does God endorse Does God even cause abortion? Now, it is so very important that we guard ourselves against assuming false things about God. False assumptions lead to terrible doctrines. If you take to be true what is not actually true about God, it can make your view of Yahweh quite distorted and in so many ways unbiblical. And so here is a false assumption that will color the way that people approach this verse They assume that God has to follow the same rules that we do in order to qualify as being a righteous God. That God has to behave exactly how he has told us to behave in order to be righteous. But this is a false assumption, friends. God is of a different kind than we are. He is not a being like we are beings. Let me show you some some reasons why. God simply is righteousness. God has not proven himself to be righteous by checking some lists off and saying, I did all these things that makes me righteous. God simply is, by his nature and character, a righteous God who can do no evil. He does not have to prove his holiness to us. He does not have to become righteous in some way. Righteousness itself is not even a thing outside of a God that is righteous and governs all creation. We know of righteousness because there is a God. And so righteousness is itself a reflection of the very nature and character of God. If a thing is unrighteous, it is so because it conflicts with the nature and character of God. So that's one way that we need to look at this false assumption and unravel it. God is not like us because God doesn't become righteous or earn righteousness. He simply is righteousness. Secondly, God created all things, and we did not. Okay? We are not in a position that God is in because only God brings about being. Only God brings life. And since God is the creator of all things, everything that he has made belongs rightfully to him. You can't say that about any other human being. Okay? None of us owns the world. It is God's world. It is God's universe. And everything that exists and has being exists because he has given that to them. So God, therefore, has an authority and a jurisdiction over all life, no matter what life we're talking about. Man does not have this authority or jurisdiction over all life. Has God given man dominion? Yes. But do you understand that the dominion God delegated to man has boundaries and limits? Man has dominion over the creatures that God has made, those that do not bear the image of God. But he does not have complete dominion, even over those, does he? We have instruction from Yahweh, who is king of all kings, that tells us how to behave within this creation, how we may or may not express our dominion over them. We're told, do not unequally yoke the oxen, right? Have compassion towards them. Don't put them an unnecessary bind where they're going to not be able to complete the task you have called them to complete. Do not hurt them to accomplish your task unnecessarily. Do not muzzle the ox, says scripture. So you might have dominion over your ox, but your God has said, don't keep your ox from eating a little bit of the grain as it goes. That's cruelty to him. He needs fuel to do the work you're calling him to do. Unmuzzle the ox. Allow him to eat. So man has dominion, but man has limits to his dominion. Some men have been given dominion over other men even. But again, not complete dominion. Husband, you have a wife, and you have been made a head over that wife according to God's structure for the family. But does that mean you have complete dominion over her? That you say, do this and she must do that? That's not the kind of leadership God calls us to, men. The Scriptures tells us that we have dominion over our wives in such a way that God has dominion over us that we should love our wives, that we should serve our wives, that we should even be willing to sacrifice ourselves for the benefit of our wives. This is not complete dominion. Even kings who have dominion over their subjects don't have complete dominion. They can't just murder at will. They must rule wisely and according to the laws that God has put in place over them. So God has created all things. So, the way that he interacts with his creation, which depends upon him for existence, is different than the way that we interact with the creation. Even though man and woman are called to be fruitful, and even though their actions are used by God as a means to facilitate in the multiplication of life, it is God and God alone who actually sparks the soul and gives life. It is by the same measure that God has authority to take away life, friends. Yahweh is the giver and the taker of life. And so when we read a passage like Hosea chapter 9, verse 16, we must keep that firmly in our minds when we evaluate the actions of God and try to make sense of them. God is of a different kind than man, so his actions cannot be evaluated exactly the same way that we evaluate man's actions. Man, too, is of a different kind than the rest of the created things, isn't he? Man is unique among creation in that man and woman bears God's image. No other creature, not even the angels in heaven, can make that claim. And so as one important aspect of man's image-bearing responsibility, man has been given a degree of dominion, as we spoke a minute ago, over the creatures that do not bear God's image. We are authorized to make use of non-human life to the betterment of human life, for man is the focal point of God's creation. But we cannot take man's life unless God, who has dominion over man, authorizes us to do so. Now you might ask yourself, what are are some examples of that? When might a man take the life of another image bearer of God? He may take the life of another image bearer in defense of the innocent. So if you see someone storm into the church and they've got a gun in their hand and they're going to try to take out as many of your brothers and sisters as they can, you don't start reasoning with them. Don't have a conversation with that person. You tackle them. You do what you have to do to wrestle that gun away from them. And if you have to end their life to save other people's lives, you have the authority to do so, because to do so is to guard the image of God. So we have the authority to take life in the defense of the innocent. We have authority to take human life as punishment for certain serious sins that God has told us are punishable by death. And we had an interesting discussion about this In Sunday school this morning the wages of sin is death so any sin means that we deserve to lose our life but certain sins that man creates in order to keep the integrity of society going should be punished by death and murder is one of those so when somebody murders it is lawful to take their life by execution and thirdly man can take human life in times of God ordained war when God tells Israel to go out into battle and to slay the Philistines. He is not telling them to now become corporate murderers. He is telling them to execute the right and righteous judgment of the God that they serve by taking the sword to a wicked people. God is the giver and the taker of life. And so as we settle into an answer for this important question about the character of God, let us remember that when God created the heavens and the earth, he created them without death. All things were in harmony and the creation was at peace. Death only entered into creation... As a result of Adam, the first man, rebelling against God and breaking covenant, it is the moment it is in the moment that Adam took of the forbidden fruit that death became an unavoidable challenge of every created thing. Man has sinned against the giver and the taker of life and therefore every man descended from Adam, the first sinner, deserves to rightfully lose their life as a consequence of rebellion against the life-giver. Now God is merciful God exercises patience so that he does not immediately slay each of us for breaking his law. The very fact that all of us are breathing today is an expression of God's mercy. You understand that? None of us stands before a living God, from the oldest to the youngest, none of us stands before the living God free from guilt and sin. Every one of us carries either the inherited sin of Adam and also the committed sins that we have engaged in ourselves so God is infinitely more merciful than we often give him credit for the very fact that he is persisting with sinners now and allowing us to live in his world is an act of mercy and grace but he is not obligated to do so it would be just for God to eliminate all life wouldn't it he would not be a wrong God to wipe the slate clean and start over again and we see a picture of that in the flood don't we God is not a sinner for bringing the flood upon the earth. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes and what was in their own eyes was selfishness and sin. The world was utterly corrupted by sinfulness. And so God in his mercy spared one family, spared eight people through the ark and showed mercy. And now the world is repopulated again because of God's willingness to endure and to strive alongside us. Consider the offer that God gave to Moses when Moses was was being criticized by the Israelites he was leading, even though he had been faithful to them, even though he faithfully communicated the words of God to them. They were so unhappy with the words of God that they constantly grumbled and pushed back against them. And God told Moses at one point, we can start over again. It doesn't have to be these people. See, God is not obligated to do anything for us. But in his rich mercy, we see his kindness and his patience every single day. If man had no sin nature and there was no offensive rebellion, either inherited or committed, then God would have no need and would not be inclined to undo life. But because of sin, God does not need to explain himself or offer justification for the taking of lives of sinful rebels against his kingdom. So let us understand something clearly here. We're going to put our attention back on abortion for a minute. Abortion is wrong but not because an unborn child is innocent. That's hard for us to grasp, but it is true, friends. We just spoke about the fall of mankind, and we've heard from the testimony of David himself in the Psalms that he was conceived in his mother's womb in iniquity, meaning he confessed his rebellion against God even before he could draw a single breath. He was already in the framework of Adam, ready to commit rebellion against God. So abortion is wrong, but not because an unborn child is innocent. And it doesn't take very long with a little child to recognize that you don't have to teach them how to sin. You don't have to help them to become a rebel. They want to rule their own kingdom even at that young age. Compared to other human beings, yes, a baby comes across as comparatively innocent. But our righteousness cannot be established by comparing ourselves to other unrighteous men and women. Our guilt in our innocence is Innocence is judged against the standard of Jesus Christ. He alone is faithful and free from sin, and by that standard, every one of us falls short. So abortion is wrong, but not because an unborn child is innocent. Abortion is wrong because an unborn child bears the image of God like every human being does. And we do not stop the life of one who bears the image of God unless God commands us to do so. You see, God is not wrong to end any life because all life springs forth generously by his initiative, his life-giving power. Life happens because he decides to let it happen. He is not obligated to sustain it unless he covenantally promises to do so. So God is not wrong to end human lives because all human life stands condemned already thanks to the the curse of sin that we inherit from the first man, Adam. So no, God is not unrighteous because he levied a punishment against the children of the Israelites in the north. God is not unrighteous when he brings about a natural disaster that wipes out hundreds or thousands of people, often including children. God is not unrighteous when he condemns the inhabitants of Canaan and calls the nation of Israel to force them out of their land and to put them all to the sword if they do not leave. Man deserves death because his universal rebellion to God makes him a sinner. And it is only the graceful patience of God that allows sinners to not experience an immediate loss of life as it is. But a second question remains, friends. We need to look at this one carefully as well. Does the fact that God ends life in the womb here in verse 16? Does this constitute abortion? And is ending life in the womb justifiable then by man, since it is something that God Himself has done? You may come across a non-believer at some point, or even somebody who claims to believe, who is very much so pro-choice. They are for the right to murder babies in the womb. And they might even open up their Bible and put it in your face and say, look, your own scripture says here that God commits abortion against his Israelite people. So how can you stand here with your sign and try to get us to not have abortions when it's, it's obviously okay to do it in the scripture? Here's the argument. If God himself commits abortion, how can he condemn man who, when man commits a, abortion? This text is a classic example of a verse taken out of context and twisted to justify the rebellious actions of man, and so I want to show you why today. The very logic of the argument reveals a fatal flaw in the humanistic heart of sinful man, and the attitude is this. I should be able to do what God does because I consider myself to be God's equal, just like God. Do you see the, the fallacy in that? If God does it, I should be able to do it. But that right away shows the wrong view of life and the wrong view of God's deity that is intrinsic in the fallen heart of man. Isn't that where the devil promised Eve? Didn't he promise that to Eve? That you will be like God if you eat of this fruit? God doesn't want you to eat of it because he doesn't want you to be his peer. But when Adam and Eve ate the fruit that they were not supposed to eat, they didn't become God's peer. They became his enemy. They became his, his enemy, a rebel of the kingdom. This is in itself a putrid false assumption that when we build upon it, creates an untenable instability in our lives and feeds the very sin that God sent his son to defeat. So let us conclude by providing an answer to the question, does God commit abortion and is abortion therefore justifiable? The very word abortion is a man-made disguise for the true sin that it is hiding. Abortion is the sin of murder. It is the sin of murder. To murder is to steal away life. It is to end life that God began. To murder is to overstep one's bounds and to act as if you are the giver and the taker of life. And we know that only God is the giver and the taker of life. So think about this clearly, friends. God cannot take murder. Cannot commit murder because God cannot take away a life from himself that belongs to him. All life is his to do with as he pleases. Search the whole of scripture. Murder is universally spoken of in harsh, harsh, harsh negative terms. It is always spoken of as sin. And God is not one time spoken of as having murdered another. Does he end life? Yes, because he is the giver and the taker of life. But his ending of life is never murder. Because life would not even exist if it was not for his gracious generosity. So Scripture does not hide God's power to give and to take away. Deuteronomy 32, verse 29. See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Notice that God kills, but He does not murder, because that is an error that only an unworthy man can make. There is no theft involved with the taking of life that God has so graciously given in the first place. Whenever God takes life, he is exercising his just and righteous dominion over all of the life that he has created. This is a dominion that you and I do not enjoy. So the very reason that abortion is wrong is that God is the giver and taker of life, not man, and any unauthorized taking of life is forbidden by Scripture. That means that we shall not murder, right, brothers and sisters? It means that we shall not commit abortion, right, brothers and sisters? It means that we shall not commit suicide because your own essence and being doesn't even belong to you. It is God's first. And so when you take of your own life and try to end it, you are stealing from the Lord. You are stealing glory from Him. He is the one who takes and gives life. So suicide is a sin against God. Euthanasia is also a sin. Think about this, friends. We live in a culture of death right now when people who pretend to be God over their own lives have said, I I should be able to go out on my own terms. I should be the one who ends my life. If I'm suffering greatly, then I should be able to say enough is enough and tap out. What's wrong with me getting a lethal injection and going peacefully into that next life, whatever it might be? Friends, it is an assault on life even though it might look like mercy in some instances, it is not righteous to end the life of a person because of their suffering or because of their advanced age. Now, there are situations where a person might be just being kept alive by a machine. They might be on life support. There might be no brain activity there or no chance of them really coming out. If that machine is the thing that's sustaining them, I'm not saying that you can't turn that machine off. In that case... You're actually letting the natural order of things take its course, but we as human beings should, should value human life so much and the image of God in every human that we are absolutely careful not to murder, not to commit abortion, not to commit suicide, and not to endorse euthanasia. Man is not authorized by the king of life to extinguish life in any of these circumstances. An assault on life against the command of God is an assault on God himself and that which rightfully belongs to God. And so firstly, God cannot commit abortion, nor can he commit murder. And secondly, to try and use this passage as justification for abortion, one has to completely and totally ignore the main thrust of this passage. To lose an unborn child is one of the most grievous penalties that God could possibly levy upon a sinful man or woman. I want to be careful as I say this to help you understand the loss of a child is not always a direct punishment for sin. You need to know that because I don't want a brother or a sister who has lost a child to think wrongfully that their little one passed away or they had a miscarriage because they committed some sin. That's not what's being said here in Scripture here and that's not what I'm trying to communicate to you. But to lose an unborn child is one of the most grievous things a human being can go through. And in the context of Israel's rebellion in the north, it was the harshest penalty they could receive, and it's what they deserved. The abortion of a baby in utero can never be considered a blessing as the abortionists would have you believe today. It is one of the heaviest curses you'll read about in all of the Old Testament, and it represents God God withdrawing his favor, not extending his favor. It represents God pulling back a blessing, not extending you relief. Those who advocate for the freedom to end life in the womb paint a picture of abortion as some kind of an answer to a problem, even as a blessing in relief. I mean, It is heartbreaking to me to see some women today in this caustic political environment going online to praise God for their abortions. Can you see how twisted? Can you see how much the enemy has deceived human minds? If we can get to the point where someone can praise God for murdering the little one that is in their womb. I I just don't think I need to say anything else about that. It is so starkly ugly to think that we have been so deceived in our lives. Friends, human life is precious. How many women do you know of who shared their testimonies with you that maybe five years ago, ten years ago, 40 or 50 years ago, they made a huge mistake Someone urged them to go and solve the problem by ending their baby's life. And every year of their life, they have thought through that again and again and again. They have, with regret, wished that they could go back and and take back that error. It has weighed heavy on their conscience, and apart from Christ, there is no relief from that guilt, from that shame. Praise be to God that with the Lord Jesus Christ, there is relief from that shame. There is healing from that hurt and from that devastation. But how much senseless suffering do the daughters of men have to endure for the sake of human freedom? Because of a lie that has been propagated among us that man has dominion over himself and over his unborn baby in a way that God never intended them to have. Why is abortion wrong? We are not the givers and takers of life. The only reason we might have the end of life is to do so in obedience to the command of the one who holds greater authority over life and death than we do. And that is God himself, friends. Now, as we draw to a close, I I want to return to something that was said um, earlier in the message. When we look at chapter 10 and we consider the words that are communicated to Israel in verse, let me find it here. I'm failing to find it and I did not write it down. Okay. The Lord God levied perhaps one of the greatest punishments he could possibly levy upon the northern kingdom by telling them he's going to take away their progeny and he's going to cut short their fertility. But there is a greater thing to lose. There is one greater thing to lose and that is God's love for the north. Let us not lose sight in all of this academic and important discussion about the nature and character of human life and the importance to protect it and to not offend God by taking it, let us not miss the fact that the greatest tragedy that we see in this passage of Scripture is a people who could have been in part of the covenant of God, who have rejected God and have now therefore been rejected by God. Friends, there is no denying that Scripture is, is plain when it comes to salvation, when it comes to being in covenant with God, there are only two covenants. There is the covenant of Adam, the covenant of rebellion against God, whereby we will continually live our lives trying to be the God that only God can be. We will continually try to flex our own authority and dominion over ourselves and over our environment. We'll fight against the command of God. We will ignore what we don't like that he says, and we'll try to make a life for ourselves. That's the covenant of Adam, and it is a covenant that ends in death. There is only one other covenant that you may be in and it is the covenant of Christ. It's the covenant whereby God through his great mercy opens your eyes to the depth of your own sin, to the depth of your own rebelliousness towards him and helps you to see that apart from his help, you'll stay in that mode. You will continually fight against him. You will be lost and wretched forever if it's not for his help. This second covenant is extended to those whom God has called out before time even began to be his covenant people. And through his mercy and grace, God chooses to open the eyes of sinners like us that we might recognize that the covenant of Adam is a covenant of death and destruction, but the covenant of Christ is a covenant of life. Romans eleven twenty two says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. In this passage in chapter 11 of Romans, the Apostle Paul was speaking of those who were Israelites, who grew up with the advantages of the old covenant promises and, and, and the law and everything that pointed them towards Yahweh. And yet he declares that so many of them were fruitless, they had turned their backs on Yahweh, that those unfruitful branches had been cut off and cast away. But then he causes us to be cautious here to the Gentile believers who are reading this in Rome, he says, don't lose track of the fact that this God who will judge the wicked is also a God of mercy. That's the very reason that you're a part of the tree in the first place, because you've been grafted into his grace. He says, there is still even hope for those who of Israel have rejected Messiah. As long as there is breath in their lungs, there is time for them to turn and repent and become part of this covenant people, to leave the covenant of Adam and to enter into the covenant of grace that is only in Jesus Christ. So let us not be discouraged as we read through these passages of of indictment on the northern kingdom. Let us not lose track of the fact that, that through it all, the grace of God has more power to overcome our sin than our sin has to separate us from God. If Christ so chooses, you may be his too. I pray that today will be the day of salvation for many who have come to a church somewhere, maybe even this church, and who have heard of this powerful God, a God of mercy and grace, but a God who will not mess around and does not play with sin, a God who has mercy and patience, but a God who also says, without Christ, you do not have life. May many turn their hearts to him today. May the kingdom of heaven continue to expand until it grows to be that great and expansive mustard bush upon which the birds of the the field come and nest in. Let the Lord build his kingdom and save his people until his return. God, we thank you for your grace and we ask that today as we contemplate your word that we would not shy away from the difficult passages like this, Lord God. It takes time to think through these things. It takes careful consideration and we need to ready our hearts, Father, to give a defense against those who would come against us and say, look what your scripture says. Are are you not confused by this? Father God, that confusion is is going to come from time to time. We have limited human minds. There's only so much that we can understand, Lord God. But your word has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. We don't need to think beyond it. So Father, help us to put your word in our heart that we might be prepared to re- respond to the rebukes of those who do not want to love God and do not want to obey his commands. Help us to always represent you faithfully, Lord. And Father, when we fall short of your word and when we break your law, Help us, God, to rejoice in the grace that is still ours in Christ. Let us have repentance right away. Help us to strive for a greater holiness, Lord God, but recognizing all the the while that our holiness comes not from our own obedience, but from your gracious generosity, Lord. Continue to give us your gifts, God, and dwell with us. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.